Will you stand with me this morning out of honor of reading today's scripture passage found in Ephesians 4? Starting in verse 15, it says, With the Lord's authority, I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your scripture today as pastor comes and shares forth your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's time for me to preach, so um, I'll start preaching on my way down to the pulpit this morning. These greeting times are never long enough. I read somewhere this week that uh, somebody said that, that we should do away with greeting times, and I was like, no way. That's just time that uh, we get to greet each other, hug one another's necks, encourage one another, occasionally say, hey, meet me after church for lunch. It's time we get to welcome those who come to church, and um, maybe this is their first time to be at Woodland, and if it is your first time, I'm so thrilled and so delighted you're here. Becky and I have a gift we'd like to give you tomorrow, just from us personally, then we have a gift from the church we'd love to give you today if you just stop by our connections desk. We're glad you're here. Becky and some of the ladies, as I mentioned early, they're down in Missouri for a um, women's conference. I had to pray through and get the victory after just such a horrible, horrible football game yesterday. I mean, I was so ashamed. I uh, normally just wait to the last minute when George is playing in the afternoon to get here in time for prayer. And I looked at Ben and I said, I got to go pray. I'm in no shape to preach now. And Ben's just sitting there laughing at me. The last person you want to meet when your football team is losing is Rocky when you walk in the door. <laughs> and I had to come down here and inspire everybody to pray. So I rebuked the devil and came on in anyway. <laughs> but um, I'm so glad you're here. I am so thrilled you're here. I also walked out of my house this morning and there was ice on my windshield. I was like, have you ever woke up? You remember that little story that you read about a, just a bad day the little guy had? I was like, Lord, this whole weekend, Georgia's losing, the weather's cold, and there's ice on my windshield this morning. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit said, man up, Denny. <laughs> I miss Becky. She needs to get home. How many of you have ever heard the phrase before, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? You heard that? I've heard that so many times, and um, when I was taking students on missions trips to the mission field, I'd always quote that statement. I'd say, now, don't do that. In my opinion, that's one of the silliest statements that you could ever say. It's a loser statement, in my opinion. And you can disagree with me if, on that if you want to, but if you'll listen to my logic, I think you might agree. If you want to conform, if you want to fit in, if you just want to be a part of the crowd and not be noticed, then that's a pretty good statement. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But in my experience in life, people who stand out, they're the ones who achieve. They're the ones who are willing to face the criticism. They're the ones who are willing to face the mocking, the scorn. 
they're the ones that refuse to hang around the crabs. Now, if you don't know what crabs do, my cousin owns a house on the Chesapeake Bay. He's a doctor there, and they go out crabbing. We go out crabbing, and, and when you catch the crabs, you put them in the bucket, and you never have to put a lid on the bucket. Because when one crab starts trying to drag, climb out, another crab will pull him back down. And they just won't let you get above because they say, when you're in the bucket, do as crabs do. Go home and get boiled to death and eaten. And oh, are they good. But Jesus, Jesus was a nonconformist. Jesus stood out above the crowd. He stood out from the crowd. Jesus, when I was a young Christian, we talked about Jesus being a radical. I mean, we would talk about a radical Jesus and a radical Jesus lifestyle. Do any of you remember conversations like that, as using that word radical? I mean, the world was using the phrase at that time, that's so rad. In other words, that meant radical. I know for some of you, I'm really sounding ancient. But I'm not ancient. You just are not informed. Jesus was radical. And he lived a radical lifestyle, and he calls us to be Christ followers. The early Christians were such followers of Jesus, that's how we got our name, Christian. We weren't known as Christians at first. We were known as followers of the way. We were known as disciples. We were known as followers of Jesus Christ. But the world began to mock us, and they began, I believe it was in Antioch, to call us Christians because they said, we were like Christ. They said, we didn't do as the Romans did. We were radical. We were nonconformist. And I want us to be a nonconformist, radical church. I want us to be the devil's worst nightmare. And I want people to ha- find it difficult to go to hell in our community because Woodland Church is here. Can you say amen to that? Let's give him a hand of praise and just thank him for that. <clears throat> So that's why I taught our students that, which leads me to this passage that Pastor Corey has shared with you already this morning, <clears throat> because Paul is writing to a Gentile church. He's writing to people, you, you remember, we've talked about this for several weeks in this, this series on Ephesians. This church was founded among the Gentiles. And they were persecuted because they gave their hearts to Christ. They were beat up. They were taken to court. I mean, it was founded in the fires of revival. And they were Gentiles that came to know Jesus. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. God did something amazing in their life. And by the way, Becky and I are getting ready to host our annual. As most of you in here know, I grew up crippled. I've had over 40 major surgeries. And um, once a year, Becky and I invite people who want to know more about healing, why God heals, how God heals, prayer, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We share our testimony, what God's done in our lives. Um, Wayne State Medical College asked me to speak to a group of students on this. I just recently sat down with an infectious disease doctor, and he had all kinds of questions for me. And then he asked me how to know God, how to hear the voice of God. It was such a marvelous opportunity. I, I do want, we just kind of did some things that I'm not really comfortable sharing from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. I just shared with another congregation, but we'll go into more detail, but just why I believe 
that Jesus Christ is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the same Jesus of today. And what he did in the early church, same. So if you've not been, be sure and fill out a communication card and let us know. Sometimes we can do it at our house. Sometimes we have to do it somewhere else. But we'll have some great refreshments and we'll just sit down and talk and let you ask questions as well. So Paul says to this church that was born in revival, they were Gentiles, they been baptized in the Spirit. I mean, they were so shocked. The early church council was so shocked by what God did. But 20 years later, they were falling all apart because they had forgotten the lost world and they turned in and it became all about them. And then the more it became about them, the more it became about me. It's like a married couple. The most selfish thing a married couple can do is get married and it just be all about them because eventually it will become all about me and that's why I say to couples in my premarital counseling don't be in a rush but one of the healthiest things you can do for your marriage is to have children because when you have children it's no longer about you as a couple then you begin to pour your love and you begin to pour your care and you begin to invest in this child and you begin to love them and you learn the selflessness of love. Because right now, let's face it, you're getting married because he's so handsome, she's so beautiful. You're getting married because you have all these wonderful dreams where he's going to sweep you off your feet. You're going to take her on your white stallion and you're going to ride off into the sunset. And you're going to build a castle and you're going to dance beautifully every night. And then on top, top of that, you get to make love whenever you want to. And wow, that's exciting. They go, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I love having those conversations. I said, but then when you get babies, then you know what love's really all about. Because they pee and they poop and they demand and they wake up in the middle of the night. And so longer, no, your love is no longer about us. It's about them. Am I talking to anybody in here? You know? You see, it's the same way for a church. If it turns on us, then pretty soon we'll turn on each other because our mission field is the world. It's lost people. And that's why Paul says, don't, don't live like the Gentiles. You're no longer part of that. And then 40 years later, Jesus would speak to the same church and he'd say, look, you're in danger of making that same mistake all over again. You're doing everything right, but you've lost your first love. Your first love for me, your first love for the lost world. And if you don't repent, I'm going to take your candlestick away. And so my encouragement this morning is let's look at this passage and go, God is not angry at this world. God loves this lost world. So why are these three verses so difficult? I remember one time after the Lord had healed me and I was getting stronger and my cousins wanted to teach me how to ride a, a cow. Never been ridden before. You just got to understand farm boys, after you get your head banged a little bit, get a little crazy. <laughs> Sometimes it can get boring. So I got up in the rafter, and I'm getting real bad feedback. Uh, Scotty and Junior were holding the cow. I dropped down off the rafter. 
they let go, and I didn't realize how much fun they were going to have. <laughs> Not me, but they were going to have. I didn't realize my foot was going to get stuck, and I couldn't get away from that cow. <laughs> so I love, to this day, tackling a challenge. And this is a challenging portion of Scripture to look at. So, Father, I'm asking you now that in the name of Jesus, God, you'll help us to look at this and I go, uh-huh. God's really mad at the world. Help us to see why you wrote these words and why they're so important to our ministry today in the context of a church that was turning on each other. For it's in Christ's name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to see is I live as I think. That's what the Apostle Paul is just trying to drive at here so hard. I mean, he's really zeroing in. I, I'm going to live the way I think. I'm going to feel the way I think. My meditations have so much to do with how I feel. My thought life has, to do, has everything to do with how I act in my life, what I achieve in my life, what I do in my life. I yesterday found myself in my personal quiet time with the Lord as I was in prayer, just praying, Lord, help me to dream bigger dreams. Help me to dream the impossible. Last night, standing here at this pulpit, I felt like during the service that, that God was just speaking to me again about that, of dreaming. And because what you think upon, it just determines how you're going to live. And the reason that this church is messing up, and if you'll pardon the kind of way I say that, the reason they're messing up and they're turning on each other is all of a sudden they're in danger of letting their thought life become just as dark as the Gentiles had become. And you've got to remember he's writing to Gentiles. And so he tells them in verse 17, he says, live no longer as the Gentiles do for they're hopelessly confused. Now, now remember, they were Gentiles. So this is, this, is, this is hitting them in a way that it wouldn't hit a Jewish audience. He says, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds and they've hardened their hearts against Him. And so obviously, if you remember, we've looked at in the first three chapters where we get this space shuttle view of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We get this space shuttle view of his mysterious plan for the earth and how the mystery of that plan was Jesus Christ dying for our sins and, and the mystery continued in that Jesus would have a church in the body of Christ. And Paul goes through all those things that are just mind-boggling. You're literally, as I've said before, you're in the nosebleed section of the stadium as you look at these great truths. And then Paul brings the hammer down. It's like the fire of God is in his mouth. It's like the hammer of Jeremiah is in his heart. And he says, now let me bring this home to you and tell you how this affects how you live. Because we can get so caught up in this world and in the things of this world in our careers, we're kind of like the man that Jesus talked about. We let the cares of this world grow up and choke out the life of God in us. He says, think about who God is, what the mystery is, and then think about how you're living now and how you should live because what you think about affects how you live. And occasionally, we all know people, and maybe you and I have been there ourselves, that sometimes we find ourselves struggling to live like Jesus. 
I mean, once you've been born again, once God touches your life, all of a sudden it makes sense to you. Yes, take up my cross and follow Jesus. That doesn't make sense to the world. I mean, we're the only people that carry the equivalent of an electric chair around our necks or put in the equivalent of an electric chair atop our buildings. I mean, the cross was a cruel form of execution. If you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, you remember all the references made to crucifixion and that powerful man movie that was made about the gladiator. The cross is a symbol of what Christ did for us, and yet here we have big and large on our platform for a reason. We don't ever want to forget what that means. But if somehow or another in my Christian life, I no longer want to carry my cross, and I want it to be more about my comfort, and I want it to be more about my dream rather than God's dream. I want it to be more about me than you. I want it, life to revolve around me. Then I'm beginning to struggle with who Christ has called me to be. I'm beginning to struggle with all these wonderful things that we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And I may find myself even envying the people of this world. They don't go to church on Sunday. If they want to stay home, they watch television or read the newspaper in their bathrobes. Or if they want to go to a ball game or if they want to spend their money on this rather than tithe. Or if they just want to be like the Romans and stick in and conform. And yet, pastor is telling me I need to share my faith with Jesus. I need to talk across the fence to my neighbor. I need to, to reach out and serve and help somebody else? What about me? Then inevitably what is happening is we're finding that hardness rising up in our life, trying to choke out of our lives, and we have to recognize there's something radically wrong there, and we need to hear what Paul is saying. Don't live like that. Don't live like that. I, I, I used to have to tell my children, don't do that. Don't, sometimes I have to tell people, don't do that. That's not the way of a cross follower. And when I think about that, and I go, well, what do I do? Well, that's what makes the next part of this verse. There's one little phrase that stands out to me. I mean, it just it stood out to me and made this whole thing all of a sudden one of the most positive three verses of Scripture in the New Testament to me because God gives me eternal and abundant life. Jesus doesn't just say I have eternal life, that I get to go to heaven and one day, but he says right now, today, today, I get to live a, an abundant life. And that's just as true for the person in, in Guinea-Bissau. That's just as true for somebody in Indonesia. That's just as true for somebody in Argentina or Chile or Paraguay. It's true for all of us that God gives us an abundant life. And I can't explain how God does miracles. I can't explain how God does things. But I have seen God do signs and wonders. I've been there when they've happened. I've seen God heal the blind. I've seen God heal the lame. I've seen God diseases, cancerous diseases come off of people's faces. I've seen God make provision. I've seen God make a way. I just know that there is a supernatural element to this life that we're living in, and it's not a life of the eerie, gally, ghouly stuff that you see around at Halloween right now, but there's a life of peace, there's a life of love, there's a life of joy, there's a life of power. Jesus describes it as an overcoming life. Paul describes it as a life where we get to live as more than conquerors, not just as a conqueror, but more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we give him another hand of prayer? for that. It's an eternal life. Because look, it's the life, and it's just a little phrase that stood out to me, the life God gives. The life God gives. Now think about that. What kind of life does God give? 
I mean, really, stop for just a moment. What kind of life does God give? God doesn't give you a car with mud all over it. God doesn't give you a wagon broken down. We all have friends. Now, you don't have to raise your hand because they might be here. We all have friends that we know if they're going to give us a gift, it's not much. It may even be something they got they didn't like and they re-gifted it to us. I had a friend like that, lives in Georgia, and I remember we invited him to a party at our house along with some other people, and uh, he and his wife came, and one of his friends says, <clears throat> because Becky wanted to do this deal called a white elephant deal, you know, and it's where everybody brings a gift and you exchange it and, and you swap, and if you don't like what you got, you take somebody. It was a lot of fun, but one of the people that was there that night says, you don't know him like I know him. He's going to bring something that uh, he doesn't want, and I want you, want you to watch. And so sure enough, he brought a gift that the friend that was talking to me gave him for Christmas the year before. By the way, he didn't know this guy was going to be at the party. <laughs> well, anyway, make a long story short, through the whole deal, the gift came right back to that very man. The thing he tried to get rid of, he couldn't get rid of. Have you ever been like that in life? The thing you want to get rid of, you can't get rid of. But he has a reputation of being miserly like that. But then we all have friends and maybe it's not expensive, maybe they don't have much in the way that the world has, but when they give a gift, it's one of the most thoughtful gifts at all. There was a lady in our church, I miss her so much, she's in heaven, it was such an honor to preach her funeral. And I tell you this, I'm not using loud faith, but if God speaks to your heart, listen. But she was the only woman in this church who would make me banana pudding without vanilla wafers and with an egg meringue topping on top of it. And she would bring that to me. She didn't have much, but she could make a banana pudding, and it was heavenly. And when we got to our house, she would bring that banana pudding to me. And I, I mean, she'd bring that banana pudding, and everybody would die for it. We all have friends that they, they make gifts. It may not be much, but when they give, it's, it's thoughtful. It may be a pie. It may be a plate of cookies. It may be something that you like or enjoy. It may be some craft they made for you that they took a lot of time. You see, there are people that take delight in giving, and there are people that just look for the easiest thing to give because they won't want to give much. But God is not like that. God is not the devil. God is not a taker. God is not a thief. God is not a killer. God is the giver of all life. And when you think about the life that God gives, there's only way, one way to describe it. It's a life of peace. It's a life of joy. It's a life of love. It's a life of power. It's a life of being more than an overcomer. Paul is saying to these Ephesians who are turning on each other, stop thinking like Gentiles because you're acting like Gentiles and remember what God has given you. What the God has given to me is greater than anything this world could give to us. And Jesus evidently thought it so for the devil looked at him one day in the wilderness on the mountain and he said to him, if you'll just fall down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus was not willing to trade what God had given him for all the riches and the wealth of this world. And don't you dare give up your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Let's give him a hand of praise for that this morning. When you read your Bible, you know that God loves eagles. They soar. I did a whole series on that about three years ago called Soar. In that series, I told you about how Dick Krug had taken me out to see a big eagle's nest in a swamp not far from the church here. And Dick had me eating stuff growing on trees that I didn't know if it was going to put me back in the hospital or not, but I, I trust Dick. 
we got out to this enormous nest, and I just got fascinated with eagles after that. You know, eagles, they, they have to flap to get off the ground. When they jump out of their nest, they drop a little bit. But eagles, they, they find these things called thermals, and hot air rises, and so they just ride these thermals and barely have to flap their wings. And their eyesight is so vivid that then they can soar down and take their prey and their talons in a lake or on the land. And, but God must like them because 33 times God talks about eagles in the Bible. And then last night, I mean, we had a, a powerful prayer service here last night. And then last night, after prayer, one of the deacons in the church came up to me with a verse of Scripture about eagles and hawks. And I thought, wow, Lord. I just love the fact that when you think of me, you don't think of me as a mouse. You don't think of me as a badger. You don't think of me as, I wish Mike and Debbie were here, a cat. You don't, think of, you don't think of me as a rat. God thinks about it. He says, you're going to be like an eagle. You're going to be like an eagle. Better than a grizzly bear. Better than a, a moose. Better than a wolverine. <laughs> it's hard to say, but better than a bulldog. You're going to be like an eagle. And God says, you're going to soar in him. This is the kind of life God gives. You're going to soar in him. And those problems that are so far below, you're going to sweep down on them in the name of Jesus and rip those things apart because no weapon formed against you is going to prosper. You've been made more than an overcomer in Christ Jesus. That's the life God gives. That's the life that God gives. So why would anybody go back to that old life of being a Gentile? The next thing I see Paul saying, he says, learn how to assess this world's culture. Learn how to evaluate the world we're living in. Learn how to evaluate the lyrics of a song or a television show. Learn to assess. Learn to assess what the world is valuing. Verse 18 talks about the hardness of heart. The King James Version uses a word I like, blindness of heart. And I'll get back to that, but I just want to put that in your mind. But because of that, in verse 19, because of that hardness of heart, or to use the old King James phrase, blindness of heart, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now, we know that every culture that has lived that way eventually collapses on itself. I mean, you don't even have to be a good student of history. We know that every culture that lives like that eventually collapses on itself. Eventually that culture is conquered or overcome by another culture that may be more violent, maybe worse, maybe better, because that culture believes in certain disciplines or certain sacrifices in life. But Christians aren't called to be conquerors in the sense of the world. If I was a senator, I wouldn't lie about somebody's character in order to achieve my goal because that's not what a Christ follower does. If I was a senator, I wouldn't spread false lies or spread innuendo and rumor about somebody's character because that's not what a Christian. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And it's amazing to me that even liberals are now writing in protest of the tactics that were used just recently Liberals who wrote, I hope to see the Republicans pummeled 
but I'm ashamed of the lies and the obvious lies and innuendos that have been published. I'm ashamed of magazines like The Atlantic and The New York Times. They're right, and, and The Times at least is publishing it. I, I copied and saved them because these are not written by people who are friendly to a conservative cause, and, and this is not about politics, liberal or conservative either way. It's about the weapons we use, and it's about the culture we live in because if we let the culture touch our hearts, We'll go to any base level. We'll go as low as you can go. We will buy in to the former attorney general's counsel this week when he said, if they go low, kick them. We'll buy in to a former presidential candidate's counsel who says, you can't be civil when they disagree with you on these things. Not only can we be civil, but we can be better than civil. We can be like Christ, and we can be confident that our weapons are powerful. The weapons of prayer, the weapons of love, the weapons of forgiveness, the weapons of truth, that if we prevail in Christ, there is no weapon in this world that can prevail against the local church. No weapon. So, Pastor, why do people do that? It's not that they're necessarily mean people. It's because their hearts have become, to use the King James word, blinded. It's their hearts have become hardened. And a blind heart can't see God. A blind heart can't understand God's ways. It's like a very wealthy oilman that I led to Christ. I had the privilege of discipling him. And I remember him saying to me one day, he says, if I do these things, that you're saying that a Christian does, and the Bible says, he says, my business is going to fall all apart. And I said, do you want to be known as an honest man? Do you want to be known as a truthful man? Do you want to be known as a compassionate man? Do you want to be known as a courageous man? I said, you know, your children know you. That's why they're distant. What do you want your grandchildren to know? And greater than that, when you stand before God, what do you want God to to say to you. You see, when you let the world convince you that the life that you came out of is better than the life that God gave you, and it happens to churches as well, then our hearts become hardened and our hearts become blind. I can remember too well standing in a Christian church a church that had been dedicated to Christ, religious art everywhere. And there was the head of someone that was supposed to be a saint. Grotesque, ghoulish as anything you see hanging on anybody's porch this Halloween. And there were people crying and praying and interceding and looking at Becky and saying, idolatry has come into this church. And no matter how beautiful it looks, Ichabod is on the door. I can remember the brokenness of standing in one of the most beautiful, magnificent temples where a great idol was standing and watching people pray to this idol. I can remember, Pastor, you're going to laugh, but this is his name. He's African from Nigeria. Pastor Duguid. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? <laughs> Pastor Duguid. He'd grown up in that witchcraft culture of Africa and his mama would make him sacrifice to these demonic gods and he talks about how Christ delivered him and 
how Dr. Addison, whose funeral I just preached, discipled him. God brought him to a wonderful campus to find Jesus as a Savior. And a bulldog led him to Jesus, just saying. <laughs> and there he was discipled at First Assembly in Athens. And today, Pastor Duguid pastors a church in Dallas, Texas, gave up his medical practice. He was a surgeon and gave up his practice when God called him into the ministry. And now pastors a congregation. You see, the idols of this thing, if we're not careful, they will infect us and we'll think we're doing our children good by taking them to idols. I've watched people do this. But understand this. God says don't live like this. And don't think for a moment that because in Africa maybe they're praying to a demonic mask or demonic God or some strange church is praying to the shrunken head or somebody is praying to a, a jade Buddha or a golden Buddha. It doesn't matter because we can have idols in the heart. They can be idols of our success. They can be idols of our pride. They can be idols of me rather than us. Idols of us rather than the church, rather than the world. World. And what Paul is saying is there's a world that is darkened and it has a heart that's darkened, their behavior becomes darkened. Look at this little formula that I gave you here this morning. Darkened minds plus darkened hearts equal darkened behavior. That's what the Apostle Paul says. A darkened mind and a darkened heart will equal darkened behavior. Scripture should comment on Scripture. So let me take you to Romans chapter 1 where Paul breaks out these three verses a little more fully. He says, God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. Say that with me. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, they clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him or even give Him thanks. And so they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. You see, Bob Dylan was right. Look at me. You're going to worship somebody. And Dylan went on to say in those lyrics, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And you will think up some idol. And so as a result, their minds became dark and confused and claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. It doesn't mean they're not smart. It doesn't mean they don't understand mechanics and physics. It doesn't mean they don't understand biology. But the Bible says that a person that says there is no God is a fool. And so claiming to be wise, they become utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious and ever-living God, they worship idols to make, that are made to look like mere people birds, animals, and reptiles. I'm just, if you want these, I'll send them to you later, but just real quickly, four things I want you to see here. God reveals Himself in nature. People know there's a God. They may not know the saving gospel because of lack of access to the Scripture or the lack of access to a preacher or lack of access to a church. It's why we believe in missions here. But people reject God's revelation of Himself. There are very smart people that just want to reject and say there's not a God. And they want to mock the people who do believe there's a God. It happens on university campuses. It happens in hospitals. It happens recently to me. When a doctor looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you no matter what you say, I don't believe in miracles. Fine. I said, how do you explain me? 
I don't know, but I don't believe in miracles. So he wrote up a test report for me. As you know, because of the infection I got this summer, I've been having to go through all these tests. So he wrote up a test report for me. He said, I want you to go get this test. I'm not accustomed to being treated like this, but I was like, this is going to be fun. Remember the cow? I've tackled bigger bulls than that. <laughs> so I get up for the test. And she says, well, the first test the doctor ordered is this. I says, I don't have one. Yeah, you do. I said, no, I don't. You got to have one. How are you standing there? I said, I don't have one. I can't explain. It's a miracle. She looks. She goes, you're right. The chart says you don't have one. Well, we're going to test this. I don't have that either. <laughs> she says, what do you have? I said, not much. I have Jesus. And she says, take off your clothes. I said, what? She says, I'm going to see what's inside of you. So I got a robe on, and they did all kinds of tests, and I got a call. I get to go have this very nice visit tomorrow because they have some questions they want to ask me. I want you to hear me this morning. If you are selling God short, you are selling yourself short. There is nothing impossible with God. Stop thinking of God as tiny and little. You serve an audi, a mighty and an awesome God who loves you so much. He gave Christ so that you could have eternal, abundant, powerful life of peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit. Can somebody say praise the Lord this morning? So what is God angry about? God is not angry at lost people. He's angry at the willful suppression of the knowledge of God. That's what God is angry about. He's angry at that, that spirit that wants to keep people from knowing what you know, what I know this morning, what so many know. And the judgment then is just simply this, is to give them over to their darkened mind. Augustine said, the punishment of sin is sin. Don't think for a moment that a sinner is going through life with the peace and love and joy you have. Augustine nailed it. The punishment of sin is sin. So what do we do? We pray. We pray that God softens. We pray that God opens people's hearts. Because how many of you know God answers prayer? We pray. God answers prayer. As you listen to us, look at Acts 16, 14. It's on the screen. As you listen to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Finances don't do that. Buildings don't do that. Last Sunday after church, or Sunday two weeks ago after church, Pastor Rick, for his small groups, was serving refreshments like you'd get in a small group. By the time I had finished talking with people and praying with people and I got back there, I was overwhelmed at the crowd he had. And I looked at Rick and I said, if you feed them, they will come. But even feeding programs don't open people's hearts to Jesus. We have to pray. They need our prayers daily. They and all of our missionaries.
Why? Because the Bible says, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who's the exact likeness of God. And if you and I aren't praying that God will soften people's hearts, if you're not praying that God will soften your children's hearts, open that, remember the blindness of the heart, the hardness of, that word porous, it, it means callous. If you've ever been to the petrified forest, you've seen how a living thing can become stone. Their hearts, and, and what the King James, because they didn't have the words that we have today to, to make these things, or their culture was just different. So the only way they knew how to translate that word was say blind. Today we, we understand what it means to have a hard heart. I pray with people whose hearts have literally become hardened. I'm praying with a man in our congregation right now that has a conditioning of the hardening of the arteries in his heart. It reveals what a spiritual condition is of the people we love and live next door to. I was early for an appointment this week and I went into a coffee shop and the only seats available were on a, a bench built on the wall. So I sat down and I was doing some journaling about this service and the missions aspect of it. And a man came, very polite, very nice man, Sikh. He had his turban on. He sat down next to me and we struck up a conversation. It never got to a spiritual conversation. And while he's sitting there, this lady comes and says, excuse me, and she sits down and she forgot to put her skirt on with her dress and she was very scantily clad and she struck up a conversation with me. And I thought, boy, I'm sure glad I wasn't talking to this guy about Jesus right now. And then I just realized God was giving me an illustration. Two people from two different lifestyles. Two people sitting close to me. They are in my bubble. I don't like it when people I don't know get in my bubble. I'm an introvert, remember? <laughs> I mean, we touched each other. You just couldn't help it. And just like Jesus said to me, I put my people in this world, but they are not of this world. I put my people in this world to rub shoulders, to talk to, to love. Pray that God will open people's hearts. The Bible says the most precious thing to you and me is the cross. The world doesn't understand it. The, the apostle describes it like this. Listen, and I know I'm far away from over there, but just follow me over here. The Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But what they can understand is eternal life and abundant life. You and I love that we wear this around our necks. We put this up. We've got a big one right here in our church. We're the only people that wear an electric chair around our necks because it means so much to us. 
But when Jesus talked to lost people, he talked to them about the abundant life, the eternal life, the life that God came to give, the one that Paul wrote about in this section. You see, as a child, I never thought about how hard mama and daddy worked to give us what we had. On Christmas morning, we just enjoyed the gifts. On birthdays, we just enjoyed the gifts. On vacations, we just enjoyed the vacation. We enjoyed the meal. We enjoyed the home. We enjoyed their love and their care. My mom and dad never one time talked about working their fingers to the bone, how hard they slaved to take care of us. My children can't tell you a time that I ever told them that. I've counted it a great blessing to raise my four children and to love them. You see, God doesn't do that. What he does is he comes because of what Christ worked for, what Christ accomplished, what Christ took upon himself. God just simply comes to you and me and says, if you trust me, if you believe me, I will forgive your sins and I will make all your Christmases put together look like a haystack compared to the eternal life I want to give you in Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? So I encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you look to him this morning? God has a life to give you. If you've wandered from Christ, God has a life to give you. If you've got lost children, lost grandchildren, a lost neighbor, pray that God will soften their hearts. And don't worry about trying to be as impressive as some, that's what Gentiles do. Just give them the best you've got, the most thoughtful you've got. It may be a banana pudding without vanilla wafers and an egg meringue topping because you know that's the best way to make a banana pudding. Give them Jesus and pray for them. And the only way you can do that is ask God to daily renew your faith. Father, I pray right now. And for anybody who's our guest today or anybody who's been in this church for a while and maybe their heart's growing hard. I ask you, Lord, soften their heart. Open their eyes to see that, God, you love them. You accomplished something for them at Calvary so that they could be put right with you and you could give them a new life. If that's you, would you just pray quietly with me right now? Just say, it's not as important to use the words that I do, but if you want to use them, feel free to. But say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, even though I don't understand it all. You took my sense to the cross. You took my place on the cross. You suffered and died for me so that I could have a life of forgiveness, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of power. And so that I could spend, when this life is over, eternity in heaven and not in hell. I trust you for that, Lord. 
And as much as I know how, I commit my life to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. While your heads are still bowed, if you prayed that prayer with me, nobody's looking around but just myself. Every eye closed. Everyone, please. Thank you. If you prayed that prayer, would you lift up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me this week. Pray for me. Yes. All, every section of pews. Yes. I see your hand, sir. God brought you here for a reason. You can put them down. Anybody else? You just say, I'm committing my life to you, Jesus. Pastor, pray for me. Well, I think I must have counted seven or eight hands just now, men and women. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Let's celebrate with the angels. <laughs> Hallelujah.